is a podcast that strives to bring the church world and the art world closer together. My name is Matt Anderson. I want to thank you for joining us. And again, whatever platform you're listening to me on, would appreciate a five-star rating and review. Well, today, since this is the week of Christmas, I'm going to be doing a dramatic reading of a short story that I wrote a few years ago. Uh, I wanted to offer this as a gift to you, the audience, for really helping this podcast get off the ground in, in really tremendous fashion. Honestly, thank you for your dedication to this. You have a lot of choices. Thanks for making this one of them. Uh, this is a story I wrote um, a few years ago with the intention of being read aloud, and I hope you enjoy it. And with that... The Matcast proudly presents Ruining Christmas. Russell Whitaker had one mission. To be honest, prior to this fair evening, he never had a mission. He didn't aim to have a mission. He didn't even know what a mission was. Who has a sense of mission at the age of eight? When you're that young, everyone else tells you what your mission is. You sit around waiting for orders. Grown-ups are only too happy to oblige with the task. But Russell never seemed to mind. He never complained, moaned, grumbled, or even sassed. No, Russell was always the kid who was never a problem. Even at his young age, his teachers always remarked on how conscientious he was. Russell would nod politely, all the while not knowing what conscientious meant. That's pretty much how the young boy had carried himself through his early life. He took everything in stride and almost blended into the scenery. It was his best and worst quality. He never wanted to be a problem for his parents, teachers, pastors, police officers, or any authority figure within a five-mile radius. On this Christmas night, though, just past the stroke of two, 
while the rest of the family calmly slept with yuletide anticipation. Russell Whitaker, for the first time in his young life, had a mission all his own. He couldn't say when the thought had first entered his young, fertile brain, but the moment it entered his cerebral cortex, he knew what a mission was. It was oh so perfect. The genius of it was found in its simplicity. Why hadn't he thought of it before? But now it was here in full flower. His mission was clear. No one had to create this for him. This one was his and his alone. As he sat on the carpeted floor of the living room, taking in the scenery of a still-lit tree and a plethora of presents, he quietly nodded in self-assurance as his mission came fully to light, and it was this. He was going to ruin Christmas for everybody. Forgive me, I'm getting ahead of myself here. I, I know what you must be thinking. How could a sweet, compliant little boy get it into his head to ruin Christmas for his entire family? How could an adult, let alone a lovable church-going child, think up such a thing? What could drive an average kid to exhibit such antisocial behavior? For an eight-year-old, only one thing could elicit such ruthless action, such thoughtless disruption, such heinous commotion. And that would be unfairness, the unforgivable sin of childhood. His entire life, eight whole years, Russell had willingly followed orders, not made waves, not rocked the boat, not upset the apple cart, not gone against the flow. He was as predictable as the sunrise. And where had it gotten him? Here. That's where. After Russell completed his mission, the only thing more shocking than the crime would be the criminal. I suppose it would be helpful to go back in time a few days to gain some perspective. It was Sunday morning, December 20th, the day of the children's Christmas production. It would be the first time little Russell would have a speaking part in the annual presentation. He had debuted as a kindergartner, to great acclaim by his grandmother, in his role as one of the angels who proclaimed Jesus' birth to the shepherds. The assignment was rather mindless, standing in the throng of the heavenly host and lifting his arms in unison with the rest of them. He remembered how nervous he was just looking out at the thousands, more like 60, parents assembled in the sanctuary. That first year, 
He was glad he didn't have to say anything. He did his best not to trip on the long white robe given to him for the part. He must have done okay because he was given the same role the next year. True to form, Russell was the easiest kid to direct. The lauds from his teachers were a familiar refrain to his parents. He was, quote, well-behaved, good-natured, well-meaning. And then there was that conscientious word again. He was going to have to look that one up eventually. But this year, this December 20th, Russell was to step out of the shadows. Truly, he had proven himself, paid his dues, put in his time, and now would be elevated to the exciting world of being downstage. This year, he would be the innkeeper, a speaking role. Russell thought he would have to memorize hundreds of, more like one, line. When Russell received the small cutout of paper with his line inscribed upon it, he treasured it like a crown jewel, like the holy grail, like a golden ticket. For weeks, he quietly rehearsed the line in his bedroom, whispering it so his older brother and little sister couldn't hear him. He tried it with varying voice inflections and emphases, put on different words of the sentence, determined to find his motivation and explore the line with all the craft of a method actor. The line was, I'm very, very sorry, sir, to say that we booked the rest of our rooms today. For weeks, he thought of little else in school. What appeared to be daydreaming was intense concentration. I'm very, very sorry, sir, to say that we've booked the rest of our rooms today. He thought, I have to make sure people catch the rhyme. So he made sure he had a bit of lilt to his voice. After all, this was going to be his chance to finally stand out from the crowd and he didn't want to blow it. Russell was a kid deeply in search of an identity. It's not always easy when you're the middle of three kids, especially when you're the least remarkable. His older brother, Mark, was 14 and already a football star. Though a freshman in high school, the varsity coaches were considering him to be the starter next year. This pleased his father, who himself was a football star in his younger days. It gave them instant common ground. From his earliest days, Dad coached eldest son in the finer points of quarterback play, proper footwork, throwing a tight spiral, reading defenses. Over the years, they had developed a shorthand in their conversation, not only about football, but about everything. They were so alike that they seemed to share a brain. Add to this that Mark was an honor student, and it was clear that he was the golden child, uh, the promised one, the favored son. Poor Russell, on the other hand, didn't know which end of a football was up and not realizing that both ends were the same was just part of the problem. A few years ago, Dad sought to mold another Whitaker football star in him, but when they played catch, the ball hit Russell's face more than his hands. Things seemed different after that. Oh, he loved his father, and his father loved him, but he didn't connect with him the way Mark did. A few years after Russell was born, 
the family was blessed with a little girl. From the day she was born, little Rachel was nothing short of stunning. She had one of those faces that belonged on the labels of baby food jars. With piercing blue eyes and natural blonde curls, she was everyone's little cherub, her family's little treasure, America's little sweetheart. Her mother Amy had to keep a tight hold on her in church as everyone in spitting distance of the lobby would want to hold her. By the time she could walk, there was a waiting list of people who wanted Rachel to be the flower girl in their wedding. Her mere childlike, angelic presence could single-handedly make a wedding photo spectacular. One in a million was the phrase her grandparents used to describe her. Amy relished the idea of having a daughter and doing all kinds of girly things with her over the years. What made it worse for Russell was that she was not even remotely a brat. She took all the praise in stride and never seemed to demand anything. She never threw tantrums, but kept the same photogenic smile on her face at all times. It was as if she was always ready for her close-up. Then there was Russell. Average-looking, underachieving, non-athletic, non-flesh-bulb-producing Russell. He felt himself to be the valley between two mountains, the semicolon of a sentence, the break between two acts of a play. I'm very, very sorry, sir, to say that we've booked the rest of our rooms today. He may not be able to throw a football, and he may not be on the cover of anything, but by heaven, he was going to nail this line. So that December 20th, thousands, more like 85, were assembled in the sanctuary to see the children of Faith Christian Church put on their Christmas best. Russell's scene was in the middle, right after Joseph and Mary's donkey ride to Bethlehem. Backstage, Russell mouthed the line that had preoccupied him since before Thanksgiving. I'm very, very sorry, sir, to say that we booked the rest of our rooms today. The lights went down after the donkey scene, and Russell took his rightful place on stage behind a makeshift counter that had been set up for the inn. The kids playing Mary and Joseph stood opposite him on the dark stage. The stage lights came on full, and Russell was surprised at their brightness. It was like looking upon a solar eclipse, beholding the aurora borealis, staring at a double rainbow. Then he looked into the audience and saw thousands, more like 72, people looking right at him, most of them with phones and cameras lifted to capture the moment in one format or another. No simple raising of the arms this time, no blending in with the heavenly host anymore. It was showtime. In the midst of all these conflicting thoughts consuming him, he could faintly hear the voice of someone talking near him. It was the boy playing Joseph, feeding him his cue. Twice. Innkeeper, if it's not too much trouble, we'd like a room, hopefully a double. 
Russell finally came to and realized he was holding everything up. After an awkward silence and slight sense of panic, Russell quickly vomited out the line that had long consumed him. Uh, I'm very, very sorry, sir, to say that we've already booked the restrooms today. At that moment, thousands of people, eh, more like 61, burst into laughter and applause. It was one of those golden moments people love, but not Russell. He couldn't understand the response. He thought he had delivered it with perfection. So why were all these people almost doubled over in laughter? He wasn't sure what went wrong. He just knew something was wrong. They weren't laughing with him. They were laughing at him. He was mortified, terrified, stupefied. The lights went out and he waddled off the stage in defeat. It took 10 minutes until a laughing wise man, eh, more like a wise guy, informed Russell of his slip of the tongue. Well, he kept to himself backstage for the rest of the play. Hoping to make a quick escape out of the church after it was over, but still in his costume, he was greeted in the lobby by more than one person who said something along the lines of, Hey, you sure made our day, kid. Russell was only eight but he knew a left-handed compliment when he heard one. If Russell was hoping that would be the end of it, he was sorely mistaken. Sadly uninformed, naive to a fault. His older brother Mark had taken the liberty of capturing the moment on video and immediately posting it online. Now his most embarrassing moment could be avoided by him and enjoyed by others forever. His parents quickly realized that Russell was not enjoying the attention. They did their best to downplay it and minimize the damage, but... Russell's mind had already rendered a verdict and passed judgment. Their compliments fell flat. Once again, he was the weak link in the chain, the fly in the ointment, the Achilles heel of the family. For the next few days, he indulged constant restroom insults from his brother and any friends who happened to see his video online. He was thankful that school was on break, or it could have been much worse. On the evening of the 23rd, most of the Whitaker family was assembled in the living room watching a classic children's Christmas movie. Brian, his father, was in his recliner with his ever-present laptop on. He had just posted the family's Christmas picture online. There they were, the Whitaker Five, all arrayed in green sweaters and white turtlenecks. Brian smiled and chuckled at the comments people were leaving. Russell climbed up on his dad's lap in order to investigate. He had been reading for a couple of years, so he recognized most of the words. The raves and compliments were rolling in, but there was something wrong with the photo. Did no one else notice? Russell clearly had his eyes closed. 
He looked out like a light, dead to the world, out for the count. When he questioned his father on the choice of photo, Brian responded, I'm sorry, buddy. This was just the best one of all five of us. Russell wondered what his worst pose must have looked like. He put it aside and read people's comments. Brian, your boy is great. You must be proud of him. He's quite a football player. You and Amy look too young to have three kids. Little Rachel looks so beautiful. She is such an angel. However, there was no mention of Russell. No mention of the comatose, catatonic, confused Russell. Before he could read any more, his father minimized the screen. Clearly, there was plenty of evidence to hide. Russell hopped down and retreated to his room and distracted himself with a handheld video game until he fell asleep. Christmas Eve was not much better. Special time was devoted with extended family to the replaying of the aforementioned restroom video. Russell's humiliation had now been cemented. This brings us to Christmas morning, 2 o'clock. Now, you must understand that these infractions, these omissions, these transgressions were still not enough to make it his personal mission to ruin Christmas for the Whitaker family. No, it was what he saw this cold, crisp night, or rather what he did not see. As Russell, now out of bed, clad in a tan robe with dark brown sash and light blue pajamas, looked over the bounty of presents under the tree, waiting for everyone in just a few hours, he noticed something. And like Santa, he checked it twice. After a firm accounting, the results were clear. His brother and sister had hundreds, eh, more like nine, presents. And Russell had, you guessed it, only eight. Trust me, he checked every possible box and crevice under the tree. He checked behind pieces of furniture to see if it had been misplaced, but no. Now his suspicions had been fully confirmed. Now he had proof. No longer was it something he sensed or felt or wondered or even figured. He knew it to be fact. He was the least important child of the Whitaker family. This was an injustice of the highest order. High crimes and misdemeanors, a capital offense. They weren't even trying to hide it now. They were almost daring him to do something about it. Now, how would this polite, quiet, con conscientious, conscious, or whatever word his teachers used, kid, react to this turn of events? That was when this nefarious plot sprang to life within his usually kind-hearted mind. If they were going to ruin his Christmas, he was going to ruin theirs first. How would he do that? He would do the one thing that could not be undone. He would quietly but efficiently open everyone else's gifts and leave them to be found in their uncovered state on the living room floor in the morning, leaving his gifts still wrapped. Now maybe someone would think twice before they took Russell Whitaker for granted. It would be the perfect revenge, the ultimate one-upsmanship, the unkindest cut of all, the dish best served cold. Mm -hmm.
but which gift to open first? Well, if you're a kid, there's one rule of presents, the bigger the better. The biggest box, not surprisingly, belonged to his sister Rachel. It was a giant cube wrapped in gold paper with a gigantic white bow. Using all his might to drag the present to the middle of the floor, he placed his small right hand on the top right corner of the box and pondered one last time if this was a course worth taking, for once taken, he could not look back. He paused for what seemed like minutes, eh, more like seconds. He thought about how devastated everyone would be at the carnage that would be left for them at dawn. He thought about his mother and father practically in tears at the very notion, wondering how could their normally conscientious son do something like this. He thought about the looks of complete horror upon their faces, the anger it would generate, the tears that would be shed, and it gave him pause. Then he remembered all the lessons from his parents, teachers, and church leaders talking about loving one another and forgiving each other, about the golden rule and doing to others as you would have them do to you. The more he reflected, the more he reconsidered. His hand remained poised at the corner of the wrapping paper, seemingly hanging there in suspended animation. He was lost in thought for a few hours, eh, more like minutes. But then something else was recalled. He remembered his parents, siblings, aunts, uncles, and cousins all laughing in sheer delight a few hours ago at his misstep in the Christmas production and how they seemed to play it on repeat over and over and over again. Fueled now by rage, he grabbed onto the gold paper and let her rip. With one diagonal motion, the gold paper split in two, revealing a children's tea party set including table, four small plastic chairs, teacups, and those ridiculous little round things the cups sit on. He felt it was important to not only unwrap the gifts, but also remove them from their packaging, and even begin to use and play with all of them, just to make his point more effectively. He opened the box and emptied all its contents. Since the table had to be assembled, Russell left that alone. However, the small chairs were intact. Russell set out the chairs in a square, as if they had a table of four, and placed a teacup on each of the chairs. He opened another Rachel present, and within was a large stuffed bear. Now Russell had a guest for the tea party. He positioned the bear on one of the pink plastic chairs in a seated position and carefully balanced a teacup on its stuffed lap. Realizing he needed to make this a party of four, he unwrapped the rest of her gifts until he was able to fill all the chairs. He came upon a stuffed blue bunny rabbit. Now this is a party, Russell thought. On the ninth and final present, he found a collectible doll fashioned as a little girl. The box said her name was Agatha. With the bear across from him, he positioned the rabbit to his right and Agatha to his left. Taking the small teapot and holding it over their cup, he mimicked a Cockney accent he heard on a cartoon and said, Would you like a spot of tea? After invisibly pouring the tea, he took his small cup and even remembered to stick out his pinky finger as he drank it. Quickly realizing he had a lot more presents to open before morning, he put his teacup on the carpet and 
headed again for the tree. Well, what followed could only be described as a frenzy of foolishness, a hullabaloo of hijinks, a cavalcade of chaos. With delight, he tore open his brother's gifts. Among them was a life-size poster of a football player. Russell assumed it was Mark's favorite player, but what did he know about football players? It was some quarterback with his arm drawn back to throw. Staying with the theme, he also received an official football like the pros use in their games. Russell stared at it for a few minutes, still wondering which end was up. Giving up, he tossed it aside. Another unwrapped treasure revealed action figures of Mark's favorite superheroes. Looking over them for a while, Russell ironically whispered, Tonight, I'm the Avenger. He paused only a few seconds before laying waste to his parents' gifts as well. They had fewer in number and, like all grown-up gifts, were completely boring. Dad had some tools and a new tablet. Mom had some of her favorite perfume and a picture of what looked to be Jesus, standing with his arms outstretched, almost inviting the viewer to come closer. Not exactly wanting to think about Jesus at the moment, Russell turned the picture around so it faced the wall and went back to his revelry. Upon returning to the tea set, he sat down, pretended to drink from the cup, and engaged in fake conversation with his fellow attendees. He asked the bear how he was handling the winter and how thankful he must have been for all that fur with it being so cold and all. Turning his attention to the bunny, he asked him about his plans for Easter. He looked to his left and said to Agatha, I'm so glad you could make it on such short notice. With Pinky once again extended. Needless to say, Russell was having a wonderful time at his family's expense. It was a dalliance of decadence, a gala of greatness, an extravaganza of excess. He used his brother's action figures to have all kinds of superhero fights. He used his mother's perfume as an air freshener, spraying it all over the living room. He plugged in his dad's tablet and hoped to start exploring the features. He was even tempted to create a password so only he could get into it. On and on it went for an hour. His sudden mischief seemed to know no limit. When his adrenaline had finally abated, he returned to the tea set. Now back in his self-assigned plastic pink chair, he looked again at Agatha and asked, And how is your tea this evening? Holding his teacup again, he scanned the living room to assess the damage he had done. Torn paper strewn about, over 20 boxes opened and discarded around the perimeter, random bows in random places. If the governor were here, he would declare it a disaster area. He had been a human hurricane, a one-boy nuclear bomb, a prepubescent cyclone. Was he going to clean it up? Not on your life. Was he sorry for what he had done? Are you kidding me? Things were going to be different from now on. Now everyone was going to know and care how Russell Whitaker felt about everything. And if he didn't get what he wanted, watch out, world. It could probably use a little sugar. That voice, who, who was that? Had he awoken his sister? He, he wheeled around toward the hallway but saw no one. Was he suddenly hearing voices, losing his marbles, going off the deep end? It was jolting and unexpected, but it, it appeared to be his imagination run amok. No sooner did he heave a sigh of relief than 
he felt a slight tug on the left sleeve of his robe. There was no mistaking it. He looked for the source of the prodding and found a smiling Agatha, now moving about in her chair, wielding her teacup. Would you happen to have any sugar? Russell shrieked, jolted upward out of the chair, stepped backwards and almost crushed his dad's new tablet in the process. Then he noticed his other companions at the tea party. The bunny had dropped his cup, lowered himself to the carpet, and began hopping about the room. Before he could scurry in the direction of the hare, he heard a low growl and rumble. The stuffed bear was now a small but living grizzly. The bear unintentionally stepped on and crushed his teacup, began sniffing the air, and headed for the Whitaker kitchen. Russell's perfect plan had now become an immoral insurrection, a nocturnal nightmare, a holiday horror. That was when he felt it. It was unmistakable, undeniable, unavoidable. He felt a distinct thump on the back of his head. He quickly twirled around to see which member of his family had caught him red-handed, found him with his hand in the cookie jar, caught him in the act. He now wanted to get caught, for circumstances were quickly getting out of hand. But again, he saw no one. What also couldn't be explained was his brother's new football now lying a few feet away from him, still moving after ricocheting off his head and onto the floor. Rotating his head like a periscope, Russell peered to the right, then the left to see who had been the culprit. He then realized that it wasn't only his comrades from the tea party that had come to life. The football player on Mark's new poster had, oh, how shall we say it, removed himself from the confines of his poster and gallantly stood in all three dimensions in the middle of the living room, all six feet, three inches of him. In full pads and helmet, he towered over Russell and, with his hands on his hips, looked down upon him with complete contempt. Before he could totally process what was happening, Russell noticed the quarterback sprinting toward the ball and grabbing it off the floor, he hurled it with all his might like he was engineering a game-winning drive. It landed square in the middle of Russell's chest, knocking him to the ground. This felt like a horrible game of dodgeball. Russell knew it was horrible because for him, every dodgeball game was horrible. Come on, catch the ball! The football player bellowed. I put it right between the numbers. Russell had no idea what that meant, so he just yelled at the jock to stop, wondering what he had done to merit such awful treatment. The unwanted passes continued to be aimed at him. Go long, the quarterback shouted. Again, Russell knew he wasn't getting any taller, so he was mystified by this command. Again, the perfect pass almost knocked the wind out of him, and he crumpled to the floor. He must have thrown at least a hundred, more like eight, passes before Russell screamed, Stop! He didn't care if he woke up the whole house at this point. Things were out of control, beyond the pale, carried away, out of hand. Politely, Agatha asked again, May I please have some sugar, sir? The rabbit somehow got onto the tree, and it teetered back and forth under the weight of this woodland creature. In the distance, he could hear the bear knocking random items onto the kitchen floor in his search for rations. 
The quarterback barked. Hitch and go on three. Ready? Break. Russell pleaded to the heavens. What does that mean? Seconds later, he dropped to the floor in order to avoid an oncoming pass at laser speed. It missed Russell but took out a lamp. His dad's new battery-powered drill and screwdriver came to life and began operating without human hands. He then heard a new voice. This time it was from below. Okay, Justice Warriors, maybe if we combine forces, we can take down Giganto. Are you with me? Russell looked down and noticed that the superhero action figures were suddenly all action and no figure. They were on a quest and he was the prey. A woman wearing a costume with a lightning bolt on it shouted, I think this is where he's weakest. All five of them made an immediate assault on his right foot. Again, she demanded, Heatstroke, use your power ray. He extended his hands and connected with Russell's foot. It felt as if he had stubbed his toe. Ow! Russell growled, now trying to grab his foot for relief. Of course, this left him on one foot. The football player naturally thought Russell was again wide open and threw the pigskin right in his breadbasket, sending him crumpling down on some open boxes. He's down! Another crusader said. This is our chance! Russell, sensing the end, got up and tried to flee. Two of the action figures began flying around his face like gnats that wouldn't go away. Two of them were pounding away, now on his left foot. One of the flying mutants used a stun ray that, when it connected with his arm, felt like a kid at school jabbing him with a pencil. Instinctively, Russell flung his foot sideways, kicking away the two literally at his heels. But this provided only momentary relief. After all, these were superheroes, and Russell was suddenly the big evil creature who was invading the city. I really think a lump or two of sugar would make this tea absolutely perfect, Agatha said gracefully. <laughs> Russell could hear a plate crash down on the kitchen tile floor and the bear moan in delight. He had found the fudge. Now this was officially wrong. Yet another bulleted throw careened off Russell's chest and knocked knickknacks off the fireplace mantle. The athlete hollered, Come on, man, catch the ball! What more do I have to do? Ornaments were now falling from the Christmas tree at a rapid rate as the rabbit seemed in search of some kind of vegetation in the midst of the family's fake pine tree. Let's go, warriors! We can't let Giganto get to the nuclear power plant! The fate of the world is in our hands! Russell panicked. It was a full-on assault. His plans to ruin everyone else's Christmas were now leading to his own ruin. These innocent gifts were now raining down fire upon him. The tables had turned. One good turn had deserved another. Sowing had become reaping. He made a mad dash for the couch and dove behind it as another pass deflected just below his bowed head. This sanctuary would only provide him with temporary relief. His father's tablet suddenly powered on and in as large a font as possible, the words naughty list appeared and blinked on the screen, changing colors for emphasis. He seemed to now be at the mercy of these terrible toys, these godless gifts, these possessed possessions. The action figures were small and agile enough to get behind the sofa and continue their attack. Peering above the back of the couch, he could see the bear had finished scavenging in the kitchen and was sauntering his way. The rabbit had bitten down on some tinsel and scurried down to the floor, toppling over the Christmas tree and knocking down all freestanding items remaining in the living room. The superheroes were using everything at their disposal to finish him off. He needed better protection than this. 
On his hands and knees, he crawled to the end of the sofa, peered around the corner, and noticed the large box that an hour or two before had contained the huge tea set. Like a brave soldier under fire, he launched himself from his predicament, sprinted toward the box, hopped in and closed the lid above him, unsure if this could insulate him. Within seconds, the justice warriors pounded away at his artificial fort. The bear put his nose against the box and gently nudged it. The quarterback, undaunted, now heaved the football at the box relentlessly. If you could just tell me where the sugar is, I can get it myself. This one is for the game, so you better be ready, rookie. Quick warriors, go to where the bear is. On three, we'll tip it over. Are you ready? Russell tried to throw his weight against theirs, but he knew the bear alone would rock him over within seconds, let alone five people in capes with perfect hair. Russell realized the end was near, the jig was up, the die had been cast. His plans had now turned against him. He had experienced the boomerang effect, been hoisted by his own petard, created his own Frankenstein monster. As the box rocked back and forth, wider and wider, and the angry mob sensed victory within grasp, Russell, out of complete desperation, not caring who in the house woke up, not caring what kind of punishment he would receive from his parents, screamed, Somebody, please help me! At that precise moment, the rocking stopped. The pounding against the side of the box ceased. Once again, it was a silent night. It was as if a thunderstorm had passed and the sun had made its majestic reappearance. Russell, unsure if this was a trap to lure him out of the box, remained where he was for hours, eh, more like a minute or two. Then, assured he was safe, he carefully opened the lid slash top hatch of his vessel. Seeing and feeling nothing, he climbed out of the box and found all the toys and gifts as they were minutes before. The football player was back on the poster. The action figures were now glorious figures of inaction. His tea companions were in their chairs, back in the land of stuffed animals and dolls again. However, the devastation was unmistakable. What he had done alone would take hours to clean up not to mention what had been done to the tree, kitchen, and furniture. Though Russell knew that punishment was now unavoidable, he was glad to be the only living thing in the living room again. Except, except for one thing. In the frenzy of the attack, maybe Russell hadn't noticed it, but one more of the gifts had come to life. Resting on the carpet, next to the giant box that had shielded him, he noticed a man about the height of his father, standing near the tree, facing the wall. When the man turned and saw Russell, it was clear that it was the exact image of the figure that had been on the picture from earlier. He had shoulder-length dark hair, and wore a white robe that descended to his ankles and a golden sash around his waist. Nothing could have prepared little Russell for this. Here was someone otherworldly looking upon him. All he could think about was all the trouble he had caused, the damage he had done, the trust he had broken. 
the novelty of being a bad kid had quickly worn off, and now all he could feel was shame. He suddenly realized he would be lucky if this man only threw footballs at him. This time it might be lightning bolts. Walking toward him deliberately, Jesus knelt down so that he could be eye level with this eight-year-old. Making full eye contact with him, Russell did not see the determination of action figures or the frustration of a football player and definitely not the furor of wild animals. He looked into his eyes and saw love. Russell was so surprised by it and so ashamed for what he had done that tears began to form in the bottom of his eyes. The holy man reached two punctured hands toward him, placing them gently on the sides of Russell's head and brushed the tears away with his thumbs. With a look of wonder long missing from him, Russell conveyed the sorrow he felt. But Christ returned his gaze with a soft smile and continued to look deeply into his eyes. There was nothing Russell could say, nor anything he needed to say. Everything was encapsulated by those eyes. The Lord used his right hand to stroke the young boy's hair and finally rested on the back of his head. If Russell ever wondered if he mattered, he would wonder no longer. It was the greatest moment of love Russell had ever experienced. The one this whole season was supposed to be about saw Russell at his worst and gave him his best. No longer would Emmanuel be a folktale, the stuff of legend or a mythical hero. Now he would be a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Cradling Russell's head in his arms, the Savior brought the boy toward him and placed his head against his chest. Russell now cried tears of joy, realizing that he had never been forgotten by God or anyone for that matter. He couldn't believe how fortunate he was. Overwhelmed, he closed his eyes and with his right hand grabbed hold of Jesus' robe near his shoulder. That's where he remained, grasping his robe for a minute or two, uh, maybe an hour. The next thing he knew, Russell opened his eyes, and when he did, he noticed that darkness had given way to the dawn. Jesus was physically gone, and Russell's right hand, rather than grasping the robe of the Savior, was poised at the top corner of a gigantic Christmas present wrapped in gold paper with a large white bow. That's when he heard the voice of his mother asking Russell what he was doing. That wasn't his present. Besides, he needed to wait until the whole family was in the living room before they started opening presents. Started? Huh? Trying to get his bearings, Russell remained where he was but looked about the room and noticed that there was no evidence of the carnage from the night before. Nothing had been moved or disturbed except that large box he had scooted along the floor that not so secretly contained a tea set for Rachel. 
All he could muster was a quick apology to his mother and then sat upon the couch that had been used as a temporary shield somewhere around 4 a.m. Within minutes, everyone was at the tree and unveiling their gifts. Russell kept a wry smile on his face throughout the proceedings as every gift was no surprise to him, except for his own, which he had left undisturbed. He especially enjoyed his mom's reaction to the discovery of the Jesus picture. Russell quickly agreed that it was beautiful. When all the gifts were opened, his father said, Now, Russell, I'm not sure if you realized it or not, but you have one less gift under the tree than the others. Russell thought, Yeah, I kind of noticed. That's when Brian stated, You still have another gift coming your way. His father scampered to the master bedroom and returned within seconds with an envelope. He asked Russell to sit next to him as he opened it up and read the letter inside. Well, turns out the infamous restroom video his brother posted, it had gone viral, garnering hundreds of thousands of views. The local news affiliate wrote the Whitakers to see if their quote, adorable and absolutely cute son Russell would consent to an interview for the local news. Even at the age of eight, you can get a guy to do just about anything if you tell him he's good looking. And Russell was thrilled with the idea. Now it looked as if he was going to have his moment in the sun as well. Not surprising, considering he had a moment with the sun only hours before. Russell's mother once again held her new picture in her lap and aloud pondered where to hang it in the house. Russell made a surprising suggestion. He said that if she couldn't find another place for it, he would be happy to have it hanging in his room. Well, mothers have a hard time saying no when their children want to have Jesus around, so she quickly agreed to the idea. That is where the picture remained, a daily reminder for Russell of what Christmas and life are really all about. With every view, Russell would remember a crazy evening that would stay between him and the man in the picture. More than that, he would be reminded of a man who came to earth to become a baby, to become a man, to die for him, and give him beautiful grace to forgive his handful, eh, more like millions of sins. How conscientious of him. I hope you enjoyed ruining Christmas and that you and your family take time to relish the advent of our Savior and his love for you this Christmas. And we appreciate you being a part of the Madcast. Our theme music is by Sound of Fusion. We hope to see you again soon. This has been a production of Monumental Ministries. For more information about our books and resources, go to mattministry.com. Hey, thanks for having me over. I had a wonderful time. Mm-hmm.